Hi, listeners. We're back with another episode of Understand South Carolina. Today is our third special about the coronavirus pandemic in South Carolina. I'm Emery Parker. And I'm Emily Williams. We're joined today by health editor Lauren Saucer and health and business reporter M.K. Wildeman. Uh, you'll remember they've been with us uh, a couple times before, and we wanted to check back in with both of them because we're seeing a rise in reported COVID-19 cases in South Carolina. Right. So we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, and yesterday state officials announced 542 cases. That's a new daily record. Uh, Monday was also the 11th day in a row that our seven-day moving average hit a new high. And state health officials are saying that these increases can't just be explained by the fact that we're doing more testing. Um, And this is also coming as South Carolinians are going to beaches and bars and stores, and they're not practicing social distancing as much as they were before. The last time that we did one of these coronavirus updates, we talked about flattening the curve and and how the curve seemed to be flattening and and how it seemed to be flat for for quite a while there. How is our current reality different from what DHEC had been predicting? I think that there are two things that have happened since the last time we recorded one of these. And one is that um, a lot of the social distancing restrictions and the stay-at-home orders um, have been lifted. So I can't remember the exact date when we recorded the last one, but a lot of businesses were probably closed back then and people were more likely working from home and staying at home. So that has changed in the past month. And at the same time, you also were also testing a lot more people. So um, you're just going to, you're going to see the numbers. We're just going to catch a lot more positive cases simply because a lot more people are coming through these testing checkpoints. But like Emily said at the beginning, the increase can't be fully explained by that um, because another number that they track is the um, percent positive cases, which is the percentage of all cases, um, the percentage of all tests that come back as positive, and that is increasing too. So that sort of takes into account the number of tests you're performing at any moment, um, and, and, and we're seeing that number go up as well. So those are the two reasons behind it. I would also add that we're certainly doing increased testing, but I checked to see how many tests we've done each day, according to DHEC. Um, and it seems we've been doing somewhere between four and roughly six and a half thousand tests per day since May 27th. And so while we have seen increased testing over time, it it hasn't been a steady, you know, sort of linear increase. We vary day by day, and we haven't seen a lot more testing that would account for these much higher case counts, as Lauren already explained. Just to give some context, I, I checked just now, and um, the last time that both of you were on the show that was March 31st, but but Lauren, I know the last time that that you were on, it was um, you and our uh, Columbia Bureau Chief, Andy Shane, and that was our episode on April 29th, and that's when we were talking about uh, the curve possibly flattening, and, and I was just checking those notes again, and, and I remembered that we recorded that, and then the next day was when 
South Carolina had a new uh, peak of of death. So we we kind of recorded that last one right when we were thinking, okay, it's moving in this direction of 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 flattening. But then there was an indicator just the next day of uh, okay, you know, we're we're still seeing some some numbers peak. So just for just for context on that, um, that's when we recorded that. And of course, when we, you're talking about April 29th. A lot of things have opened since then. So we saw a lot of reopenings in May. Um, Restaurants have been able to be open for close to a month now, about a month for outdoor dining and about a a week less than that for their dining rooms. Um, Retail stores had already been opened. Tourist attractions were opened Memorial Day weekend. Um, So a lot of reopenings have happened in the month since we recorded that that episode. Well, talking about about the, these curves, I guess um, to to give people a little bit of context and and um, it, you know it. This is, I think, personally, I think this is one of those things that's maybe easier to look at visually. And and if if you're like me and, and you want to just see it, you can go to our our dashboard. It's at postandcourier.com slash health slash slash covid nineteen. You know, just go to postandcourier.com and and we have a, a link to it um, right there on the homepage. Um, but, so one of the things that, that we've been tracking pretty much since this began is is we have a chart that shows you how many cases per day have been reported. And, you know, that data is is very noisy. You know, like one day it'll be 200, the next day it'll be 100, the next day it'll be 200 again. So to make that data easier to look at, we calculate what's called the, the seven-day moving average. And basically all that means is you just take the last seven days at any point and look at what are the av- what's the average of those those seven days and that gives you a much smoother line that isn't as susceptible to like those day-to-day wild swings up and down um and so what you see is that when when all of this began in March we see the line start to move upwards very quickly and then early April around when lockdown began we see that line pretty much plateau flatten out, actually go down a little bit. And for pretty much all of April and most of May, you know, we were seeing somewhere in the range of about 150 cases a day. Um, you know, the, like I said, there, there would be day-to-day variations in that, but that was pretty consistent. And that line looks really flat. Then towards the end of May, around like May 28th, and and from that point on, we go back to that first shape where we're seeing the cases increase day over day. I remember when when we started to talk about reopening, there was a lot of discussion about you know this this idea of a second wave, and I haven't heard a lot of talk about that. I, I'm I'm kind of curious. I'm I think I'm kind of comfortable saying that this looks like a second wave. What do y'all think? I don't even know that there was a first wave. That's fair. <laughs> In South Carolina, at least. Certainly, we saw other areas of the country where um, there was a lot more disease activity than there was here. So it may just be that um, it sort of traveled here a month or so after it did some other places. So that could partially explain why these cases look like they're rising so dramatically right now. What have we heard from health officials in terms of how they think 
South Carolinians are doing in terms of social distancing, wearing masks, following those those guidelines to prevent the spread. And then I'm also wondering if both of you can speak to just what you've personally observed, um, you know, over the last several weeks um, when it comes to social distancing, masks, uh, like I said, those those precautions that we're still recommend it's still recommended that we take. I think that it's very it's all very anecdotal for the most part in terms of what we all observe um, and what health officials are observing. But we know for sure that um, health officials with the public health department are um, concerned that we're not doing enough of these social distancing measures and they've reinforced their recommendations to continue with them, um, despite the fact that, you know, we've really reopened the state at this point. There are tech companies that track uh, cell phone data and they give one called Unicast gives us an F throughout the state in terms of like how much less we're moving around um, compared to what we would be doing on an average, you know, first or second week in June, which, you know, I think anecdotally isn't too surprising to me, given just, you know, walking through grocery stores in Charleston, Columbia and Greenville in the last couple of weeks. Um, there doesn't appear to be a ton of social distancing going on. Um, and then a final point I would add is that uh, some of these new cases um, are attributed to single households and commu- specific communities like the Hispanic Latino community in Greenville, where DHEC is observing a lot of spread and not a lot of social distancing. One of one of the data points on that front that I, I've been tracking just like internally um, and and listeners can actually go go look at this too if if they want. But Apple has a website um, where since the beginning of the the outbreak, they've been publishing kind of a- anonymized um, trends. They they call it the uh, mobility trends report, and basically it just it just shows how frequently people are using you know Apple devices to get directions to places, which tells you a pretty good idea of of how active they are and how much traveling they're doing. And yeah, I mean, you can definitely see that um, there was a big dip in April and May, and we're well back above the uh, the normal baseline from before the outbreak. I'm sorry if I um, am repeating something that MK just went over, but I interviewed someone from MUSC on Friday who was also looking at the cell phone tracking data. And he was saying how at the beginning of April, they're tracking disease activity specifically in Charleston and Lancaster and in Florence, where they operate. Um, facilities. And he was saying at the beginning of April, human mobility was about 30% of its normal level. And now we're back up to 85%. So it just shows you how much, you know, more we're getting out and about now than we were six weeks ago. MK, I want to go back to what you said about, about Greenville, right? So we know that, that recently Greenville has kind of emerged as somewhat of a hot spot, right? We're seeing a proportionally high number of, of cases coming out of the county, but then in particular, uh, a high proportion in the Latino community there. So I guess just first of all, can you give us an idea of what the case numbers have been like in in Greenville and then what has been done since there was that realization that within the Latino community, the spread was... Um, uh, particularly happening? 
Yeah, I think so. Looking back at my numbers, it looks like the Greenville cases started to tick up pretty dramatically on May 29th. They jumped from 20 the day before to 75 on May 29th. And they've remained consistently high since then. And in fact, um, yesterday, June 8th, um, they set a new record for themselves, which was 116 cases in a single day. Um, And on Monday, no, I'm sorry, it was on Friday, um, DHEC said that it could attribute 30% of the new cases in Greenville to the Latino Hispanic community. Um, so that's, that's significant given, I think it's somewhere around 10 or 11% of the Greenville County population uh, sort of falls within that ethnicity. And what was the, the response when they, when they realized that is, are there any, is there any explanation that they had or, did they change their outreach at all? Because, right, we're talking about some that are it's mm-hmm. a Spanish-speaking community. Did they think there was that was a factor in terms of communicating the information that they need to know? Well, yes, um, because they they went on um, Spanish language radio in in Greenville, um, and they say they have more of those um, appearances planned, and they went specifically into the community and put up a pop-up testing site. So they've certainly um, expanded their outreach efforts. And um, Lauren knows this, every health reporter knows this, but um, minority communities in particular, public health officials find it's harder to sort of penetrate those communities with public health information. Um, There's less trust in the medical institutions and certainly the language can be a barrier as well. Lower um, rates so of health insurance. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Among that community as well. I wanted to talk about that more in in general to how we know that uh, coronavirus has, has impacted minority communities. And especially when we're talking about the African-American population, that's in terms of cases and deaths, they're being disproportionately affected. Uh, what do we know about that at, at this point? point in terms of what those numbers look like? That's something that I'm working on this week. (laughs) So stay tuned. Yeah, I think that um, one one thing I know for sure is that the the African-American community in in South Carolina is more prone um, to some of these underlying health conditions, such as diabetes, for instance. Um, And diabetes is a big risk factor for coronavirus. So, so DHEC actually records that, and I'm sure Lauren will be taking a look at that this week. But we know just from raw numbers of deaths and um, cases that certainly the, the Black community is very disproportionately affected in South Carolina. I can tell you it's not only disproportionate, consi- like when you factor in, um, you know, the percentage of the population that is Black in South Carolina, but it's actually more. Like, there are actually like raw numbers. There are actually more African American patients who've been diagnosed with COVID than white patients, which is telling, considering wow. that you know percentage wise, there are a lot more white people living in South Carolina. Yeah, I guess um, just to give listeners a little bit of context into like what the the numbers actually look like for these different counties. So, according to to our own tally, in the last 14 days, Greenville County has seen 870 new cases. Now compare that to 426 in Richland, um, 298 in, Ho- in Ori, 
and uh, 248 here in Charleston. So, I mean, clearly the, the numbers are are just much, much higher up in Greenville than they are anywhere else in the state. One of the things that, um, so I was, inter- I think I already mentioned his name, Michael Sweat. He's the director of the Center for Global Health over at MUSC. And he was telling me how the the DHEC data, while crucial and, and important to look at every day, is really not as helpful as looking at what the disease is doing regionally across the state. I mean, South Carolina isn't a terribly big state, but it's still, it provides more information for public health experts and, and healthcare providers to look at sort of where these hotspots are and try to manage those rather than look at, you know, what is happening all across the state. Because just like the disease activity has been very different here compared to New York, you know, it can look very different in Charleston than it does in Greenville. So, MK, another story that you had recently was related to testing done at at nursing homes. And right, all nursing home patients and staff across the state were tested. Is that is that right? Mm-hmm. How did that um, testing process work? And, and when was that when was that completed? That was pretty recent, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, it was a commitment that that um, DHEC made to, as you said, test every staff and resident um, in all of the state's nursing homes. They've also tested many people in assisted living facilities, which are technically a different sort of class of facility. Um, and that's that's going to continue in the months to come. Um, but as far as nursing homes go, they completed that work um, at the end of May. So we had a full perspective by early June um, of where the coronavirus cases were, I guess. Um, and it's it's tough because it they reflect obviously kind of a moment in time and not the full picture from the full pandemic um, so far in South Carolina. But the story that I wrote was that one, one company um, na- named Pruitt Health uh, was responsible for a third of all the deaths in nursing homes and South Carolina in May, and it actually is responsible for just the most full stop um, since, you know, March when this all began. So um, that's definitely striking. And DHEC says that they've sort of toured those facilities and looked at all their precautions and they actually found no problems. So they're not they're not going to reprimand the company in any way. That's what they said. And for that, you looked back at some of their past inspections, right? These these nursing homes for, for this company. What did you find when you were looking for, for that information? Uh, they weren't the cleanest. The, not every inspection every year is going to address infection control. Um, it does sometimes for some years for some facilities, but... Uh, what what federal inspectors decide to record can kind of change a lot year to year, but um, a few of the facilities that Pruitt Health runs in, in South Carolina were cited for things like rusty bed rails and dirty, sticky floors and mold, which none of that is good. Um, put that all into perspective, th- this is a whole different topic, but there are a lot of kind of like not so great conditions in a lot of South Carolina's nursing homes to begin with. So it's hard to say how much of that contributed to these, um, you know, sort of elevated deaths that we're seeing in this one company's facilities. Did there seem to be any correlation between a 
particular facility that had these not-so-great reports and ones that had higher numbers of deaths, or is there just not enough information to... Yeah, I mean, certainly I wouldn't be uh, a person to be able to say that there was like certainly a correlation. Um, But but this has been pointed out in news reports across the country, certainly, um, that um, these nursing homes with lower scores from uh, the federal government tend to have these bigger outbreaks, unfortunately. And yeah, the the facility where it had the most outbreaks or the most cases, I'm sorry, um, of patients who died was in Ridgeway. And while that one has a four star rating overall, they did mention some problems with infection control and cleanliness, kind of as I pointed out before. Do we have an idea of the age breakdown of coronavirus cases in South Carolina? Yes. (laughs) I'm not sure off the top of my head. Laura, do you know? No, not off the top of my head. It's it's there on the website. Um, If anyone who wants to explore... Um, any of this, you you have to do a little bit of strategic looking around. But if you go to the demographics section on DHEX page for coronavirus, you'll find that information. Or I guess do we do we just generally have an idea? Are are young people getting sick too? Of course, we know uh, disproportionately it is it is the older population who is unfortunately uh, contracting coronavirus and getting serious cases and in some cases uh, dying because of it. But but do we at least know that, just at least overall, that the cases are broader spectrum of ages? Yes. So actually, I have that in front of me now. And it it's funny that the age groups 21 to 30, 31 to 40, 41 to 50, 51 to 60, and 61 to 70 all have almost the same percent okay. of coronavirus cases. It's just that the deaths are so far skewed toward the older population that that tends to be the focus of a lot of conversations, but certainly young people should remember they're well, according to this actual South Carolina data, just about as likely to contract the disease. Right. And I'm sure it, again, this is anecdotal, but just for anyone who may be out and about, you might be seeing a lot of young people, maybe who are uh, maybe not wearing masks, maybe in more crowded spaces. But I just think that's a good reminder to to give people that we're seeing people contract this disease who are any age, and those people can, of course, spread it whether or not they have um, a serious case um, or a more mild one. That's right, and. I actually thought maybe this could be a good time to address, too. There was some confusion yesterday because um, the WHO, um, (laughs) we all know this, but the WHO yesterday said, what was it, Emery? It's complicated. Um, They they initially said that um, asymptomatic spread of, of the virus was very rare, but they had they they then did a lot of cleanup on that statement because it it turns out that was a very very specific thing that they were saying and and every just about everybody misinterpreted it which i i think i think you can definitely fault who for not not being as clear as they could have been in this case um so so basically what they were saying is that if you're fully asymptomatic you're unlikely to spread the the virus to other people that is different from pre-symptomatic which means like before you're showing symptoms. 
So those are totally different circumstances. And you, you do s- still and, and always have been spreading the virus when you're pre-symptomatic. It just turns out that, that those very, very, very mild cases probably aren't as, as big of a public health concern in terms of um, spread. But yeah, they, they, they really, really walked pretty much everything they said back. And it caused a lot of confusion yesterday. Yeah. And I think it seems like the takeaway for the average person remains pretty much the same, that these social distancing measures, the best voices on this topic say that's still necessary. Nothing on that front has changed. You know, I, I don't I don't know how much we know about it, um, but I do feel like we at least need to to talk about the fact that we've also in the last couple of weeks seen, you know, the, these massive demonstrations and I think you've seen different things nationwide. I think locally we've seen, you know, some people practicing social distancing. We've seen some people wearing masks, sometimes not. Uh, I know I was out Sunday morning, the the morning after um, there there was like the riot on, on Upper King Street when people were like, you know, cleaning up, did not see a lot of masks that morning. What are, what are, public health authorities saying about about this, if anything? Well, first, I think that um, it's too soon to tell what impact these protests will have on the number of cases locally or statewide or nationally, simply because people are, um, even if someone got infected during a protest a week and a half ago, they may not be showing symptoms right now. And so they likely have not been tested. But um, so, so we're not sure, but one thing that I've been told is that um, it's kind of a mixed bag. Some of the behave- behaviors associated with protests are risky. There's chanting. There's a lot of people in sort of touching each other and um, in large groups. On the plus side, they tend to be outside, which is less dangerous than a large gathering inside it, let's say right. like a bar or something like that, where you're talking really loudly to the person next to you. And um, so anyway, it's just to say it's definitely safer if you're going to protest, wear a mask, um, whether it's inside or outside, but generally outdoor gatherings are going to be safer than large indoor gatherings. And I will say I've, I've been at a, a number of the, the protests in the last it's been going for about 10, 10 days or so now that that protests have been continuing. And I have seen a lot of masks, though, the first day of, of protesting here in Charleston, where it was a very large march, that social distancing was completely impossible. It was a really, really big crowd. But we've seen smaller crowds since then, and it seems like People have been distancing a little more just because it's more possible, you know, where you don't have hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, so while people are continuing um, to protest, um, it seems in some of those situations, for for example, I was out in uh, Walterboro over the weekend, so a much smaller community. They had a protest. People were kind of distanced, it seemed, with their households. They were kind of sitting with, with people that they came with. Um, almost everyone wearing a mask. So uh, these are definitely continuing, but but like I said, it seems like some smaller demonstrations and, and maybe um, maybe some more distancing going on there just because it's it's more possible to do that with, with fewer I went, people. 
similarly, I went to, well, it wasn't really a protest. I guess it was more of a demonstration at MUSC on the horseshoe on Friday afternoon. And I would say 99% of the people there had on masks. Now, granted, they get them from their employer. They're required to wear mm-hmm. them at the hospital. But um, during the demonstration, people were pretty well spaced out. The problems that I observed were sort of when the demonstration was starting up and when it was breaking up. That's when you know, there was less social distancing going on. But um, like I said, the vast, vast majority of people there had on masks. I was in North Charleston on Saturday morning, and actually I was sort of heartened by this interaction. I saw someone not wearing a mask engaged in this sort of uh, impassioned conversation with a fellow demonstrator. And the person, the other person was wearing a mask and he went, hey, man, you're not wearing a mask. Go get one. And that, I was encouraged by that. Literally mm-hmm. everyone else, of, and there were probably a little more than 100 people were wearing masks. That's good to hear. So, uh, Lauren, one one thing that I wanted to ask you about was a story that, that you just wrote about people who are dealing with grief right now. So, obviously, there are millions of Americans who are, are grieving, and funerals, uh, rituals that we typically have are not the same. Um, so, I guess, just to start out, wh- what did you hear from some— professionals in the field and in terms of what what that can do you know having those those rituals of of grieving disrupted by this so it's something that i've been thinking about a lot lately because my father-in-law died in december and we um held a memorial service for him in january and um it was you know it was a really the day that he died in the hospital it was a very sort of somber and profound day with us sort of gathered around the hospital bed in a little ICU bay. There was probably, um, I think at one time, you know, five of us gathered around him in that small room. And when, you know, we held the memorial service, we we did it outdoors, but there were over a hundred people there. And I was just thinking how both of those things um, were so important for us, um, you know, to be able to say goodbye to him, um, to be able to celebrate his life with, you know, our friends and family. And, and, and I've been thinking that, you know, wow, what if that had just been taken away you know, from us, it would be so much harder to process. And I I spoke with a few different health professionals last week on this and, and, and they, um, they backed me up. They said, you know, holding a memorial service or saying goodbye to a loved one, you know, has a very profound psychological effect on, um, people who lose someone in their family or a close friend. And it, it, it sort of gives you, a social, so I'm, the word is escaping me, but like an acceptable way to grieve because people, one funeral director told me whether or not you hold a memorial service, people are going to come up and talk to you about your loss. That's going to be in the aisle of the grocery store, in the parking lot at Walmart, at a, you know, or at a funeral. And so, a lot of times these services can offer a, a way for people to grieve and then comfortably move on without having to relive that moment dozens of times over the next six months. I I also talked to the experts last week who said that it generally takes about six to 12 months for people to start feeling normal is the wrong word, but to feel like they've adjusted to living with their grief. And, and, and one particular psychologist was worried about 
you know, how that trajectory will look different for people who've lost loved ones during this pandemic, because we, they haven't been able to move on in, in similar ways yet, at least. But, but, you know, there, there are ways that people are figuring out how to do these things differently. I mean, there are these zoom funerals and there's, you know, software actually designed specifically to hold online funerals. And, and if you're not able to gather together in large groups, there are, there are ways to, um, to greed for sure. Um, you just need to be um, purposeful about it and um, sort of dedicated to, you know, as a family and as, or as a, or as a social group to, you know, whether it's making sure someone leaves flowers by the graveside, you know, on different days of the week, you know, just the rituals, while they may look different, it's important to get creative with them, I think. And I know you spoke with some people who are actually dealing with this right now. What what did they tell you? Was there anything that stuck out to you in particular about how they described this experience? I spoke with one person who who I did not end up quoting in the article. Um, and she her father passed away um, a few weeks ago. And she I think it's just too raw. I think it's just. You know, I, I, she, I don't think she was able to be there, you know, with him in the hospital when he passed. And it's just, it, I think it's been really painful. Well, I'm really glad that you wrote that, that story. I was happy to see something about that because, of course, for, for those of us who are fortunate enough to have not lost someone during this time, I think it's important to put ourselves in those, in those people's shoes and, and try to understand what that what that and, would and there's, be like. And there's plenty of people who are, you know, passing away for other reasons right now. Right. So, I mean, right. like, you don't necessarily have to be dying of COVID to be impacted by, you know, all of these new restrictions that are right. preventing right. us from holding funerals. So, Right. Like, I've, I've got a, a friend of mine. Um, his uh, great uncle, um, he's, he's got a really, really tight extended family. His great uncle in Europe... Um, has uh just was diagnosed with a pretty advanced case of of leukemia and so now they're they're yeah dealing with that the the fact that you know n- not only is it um a, a situation where you know that this person is like approaching end of life but it's in on a different continent um and at, at a time when you know you really can't be traveling and, and even if you did um you know you'd, you'd have to well, you wouldn't um, want to be around someone who is so immunocompromised. Yeah, anyway. it, exactly, exactly. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's really, really radically changing the way that that people approach these situations for sure. So, I know we've been uh, at least on the the previous ones. We we asked about working from from home things, and we're we're not working from home now. We're still all, to be clear, recording in different uh, rooms. So maybe instead of that. Have either of you, um, do you have a favorite social distanced activity that you've maybe been doing now that we're we're coming out of our homes a little more? Well, I'll mention the article that Tom wrote in yesterday's, in, in Sunday's paper, I should say, about these neighbors in West Ashley who turned their fence into like a bar where they can both sit yeah. on different sides. And I thought that was a really cute story. Um, I have a, our group of friends, um, a few times we've organized um, sort of like social distancing potlucks where we'll line up like there's six couples. So we put six, you know, 
hair cedar bags on somebody's front lawn and everyone puts in, you know, whatever dish they've made to go. And then everyone takes their bag home and there you have dinner and then you zoom and have a dinner party that way. That's smart. I have a friend who I can't remember if I said this last time, but we've just been doing like a dinner swap. So each week I make a meal for her and her partner and every week she the, the following week she'll make a meal for me and my partner um and so that's fun it feels almost like we because we get to see each other for that moment when we kind of stand back and uh trade grocery bags but um then we get to enjoy each other's food which is something i really love nice i like that both of those are food related mm-hmm. <laughs> food brings people together even at a distance definitely <laughs> definitely true anything else that we definitely want to cover only that everything is going to change tomorrow as soon as we get this posted. So, yeah, <laughs> that definitely seems to yeah. be how any coronavirus <laughs> related yeah. news goes. So if that is uh, the case, listeners, just remember that you can always get the latest um, news and real time stats. All of our charts um, go just go to postingcourier.com and um, there is uh, on the home page. You can easily find it. It says essential uh, COVID-19 news. Just click on that and that gets you to our dashboard with all of the latest stories, like I said, in those those charts, those stats, and everything that we know. And reach out to us if you have any questions that you're itching to get answered. Um, and consider that we've maybe thought of it too. Uh, we're waiting for DHEC to come out with more information as we go, but we really want to hear from you. So reach out to Lauren or me or any other reporter and let us know what you want us to know. Find yeah. out. <laughs> and can you both uh, remind us what are the best ways to reach you? Twitter handles and emails. Um, you can call my direct line here at the newspaper. It's 843-937-5598. If you call me during office hours, that's probably the best way to get my attention, to be honest with you, because so few people actually do it. But you could also email me. It's lsaucer at postandcourier.com. And uh, I'm at MK Wildeman, that's MK Wildy Man um, on Twitter. And that's the beginning of my email too. So it's MK Wildeman at postingcourier.com. Yeah, how many podcasts give you a, a number to call in? Yeah. Not many people. Not many. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't I just telling you, Emery, that I hate checking my voicemail? But if yeah, you, you were. But if you call me during office hours, I pick up the phone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> The thing Don't is, the, pe- voicemail. the people that leave the voicemails are not the ones who are happy with you. That's, That's what right. I've learned. That is, yeah. They really want you to know yeah. how unhappy they are. That's pretty true. <laughs> well, if you have comments or questions or suggestions for this podcast, um, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We are at UnderstandSC. So until next week, um, I'm Emery Parker. And I'm Emily Williams, and thanks for listening. Keep social distancing and wear your masks. Wear your mask, y'all. All right, and that's all. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier in Charleston. Our theme song is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music by searching for Billy, that's with an I-E, Fountain, on Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can get in touch with us by emailing understandsc at postandcourier.com or, of course, you can tweet at us with any questions or comments. And if you're a fan of the show, please take a second to like us and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store. See y'all later.